Hi there, friends, and welcome to episode 153 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I am joined by a personal icon of mine, a musician whose work has soundtracked my life for many years, and he's also an artist whose comics you may have seen floating around on social media, and of course, a birder here to chat with me about the touring musicians of the North American skies, Sandhill Cranes. We talk about the mental health benefits of birding, how crane couples keep their romance alive, what a musical interpretation of their iconic call might sound like, and way more. There is just so much to love about these incredible animals that, as Jukebox the Ghost says, I will not hold it in. Just the Zoo of Us presents Sandhill Cranes with Tommy Siegel. It is Ellen Weatherford. I am here with Just the Zoo of Us. This is your favorite animal review podcast. And this week, I almost can't even express how excited I am because this is an episode of great personal significance to me as a person. Uh, This week, we have a brand new friend who some of y'all may already be familiar with your work. This is Tommy Siegel. Say hi, Tommy. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Can I get your pronouns real quick? Yeah, he, him. Thank you so much. So, Tommy, I, I'm i going to walk our listeners through how I came to know of you, which is through your music. You are the guitarist and the songwriter for uh, the best band in the entire Whoa. world, Jukebox the Ghost. Can you introduce our friends to Jukebox the Ghost a little bit? <laughs> wow. No pressure, right? Yeah, no pressure at all. <laughs> um, yeah, so I play guitar and sing in Jukebox the Ghost. We've been a band for over 15 years. Um, it's just the three of us, and we're kind of like a piano pop band. Some people say we sound kind of like Queen, but mm. you know, we do, we do our own thing. That's just it's just easy to be able to toss a band comparison in there. But yeah, we just came out with our sixth album, which is called Cheers, and it's incredibly good. Thanks. <laughs> I have to say that Hey Mod is like one of my favorite songs I've ever heard. I've probably listened to it five hundred times already. That's awesome. I've heard y'all's sound described as power pop. Yeah, is that a thing? <laughs> it's a thing. We never know how to describe our band because we we sort of. You, you know, you know our music. It's a little bit all over the place, and we we enjoy that. But uh, it makes it hard to uh, nail an adjective onto what we do. Sure, I think a lot of like what I enjoy so much about y'all's music is that it combines this very like energetic and upbeat, up tempo sort of sound with like nihilist, like apocalyptic lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. That's my fault. No, but it's so, it works so well, <laughs> you know? Like, it's such a, a, a great balance of, like, it's that meme where it's, like, the girl with the rainbow hair in the car, <laughs> and, like, that's the sound, and then the goth girl next to her, and that's the lyrics. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely love that juxtaposition. Ben, who's the pianist singer uh, of our band, is... Uh, kind of more of the primary songwriter but he uh his songs tend to be more about love and mine tend to be more about the end of the world so we've sort of got we've got a funny dichotomy when you listen to our records 
I feel like it's music that makes me feel like the way my dog feels when I ask her if she wants to go on a walk. You know, like it's very much like happy, ready to go. Like, yes, whatever's going on is great. Oh, wow. Well, that that is an honor because that's the, from what I've seen, that seems to be the greatest feeling of all time. And so people listening may also know you from your work as a cartoonist. You make these really charming and poignant cartoons of a variety of subjects. What uh, what has your cartooning journey been like? Yeah. Um, so yeah, cartooning became like a big thing for me only like four years ago. Um, before that, I kind of did it casually. Sometimes I do it in the van when the band was on tour. And then, yeah, about four years ago, I started a challenge to draw a cartoon every day for a year. Just because I, I saw another cartoonist do it, and I was expecting him to like for him to burn out at some point. And instead, I just watched this guy. His comics get funnier and funnier and sharper and sharper. And I was like, well, maybe, you know, I was feeling kind of insecure about my own comics. I'd submitted for The New Yorker and gotten rejected a few times. And I was like, maybe I should try something like that. I feel like my my stuff could be better. So it was kind of like a self-betterment quest. And I ended up doing it for 500 days. 500 days is a long time to do anything. It was, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend it uh, for everybody, but uh, I got through it. And it turned out to be a great thing. I mean, from that stretch, I mean, I really learned how to do digital art. I learned a lot about drawing. I learned a lot about joke writing. And um, from there, I met my publisher, Andrews McNeil, and put out a couple of comics anthologies uh, with them during the pandemic. One is called I Hope This Helps, and one is uh, called Candy Hearts, and those are just comics that deal with uh, those conversation hearts that you you see around Valentine's Day, my uh, cartoon take on those. And yeah, it's just become like a, a real anchor for, for my life, which, um, you know, I think before, like, between tours, between Jukebox Ghost Tours, I really, like, didn't know what the heck I was doing. And uh, so now I have like this uh, fun side career that's I kind of split my time 50-50 between Jukebox the Ghost and comics these days. It's really fun. It's been really interesting to see your like cartoons and your comics pop up in corners of the internet where like I'm connected to people who I know don't necessarily know your work from the band. And I do because I started listening to your music when I was 15. And so I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny. Like, the internet is, like, uh, very kind to pictures. And Jukebox the Ghost is, like, a very um, – we're, we're definitely a cult band. You either have heard of us or you've <laughs> never heard of us at all. Um, there's not a lot of in-between. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've run into this strange situation now where my social media following for comics doesn't, I would say 98% of the people following my comics at this point don't really know about the band. And so now when the band puts out stuff, I'm in this weird position of going like, like, hey, you guys want, you guys want to check out my band? Like, we just put out <laughs> an album and I feel like people are like, no, draw more butts. While you're here, here's my SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It feels like that, you know, but I'm like, no, I, sw I swear we're a real band. And it's so funny that like, you know, like y'all have played on like David Letterman and like Conan O'Brien and <laughs> 
so like are such an accomplished band. And then a lot of people just are like, oh, the the guy that does the cartoons of the hearts and the butts. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny. I mean, but yeah, Jukebox, you know, we, we've sort of, we've never had like a larger cultural moment. We've always kind of bubbled around in our own little sphere of word of mouth, kind of, even though we've done those things like David Letterman. So yeah, it's a very strange little, very strange <laughs> dichotomy. Yeah. So to tie it into our animal for today, something that I made a note of when you posted it, because it got quite popular in like birding circles, was the cartoons that you drew of birds with butts. <laughs> yeah. Can you walk me through the origin of the birds with butts? Um, yeah, so... Was there an origin? Well, <laughs> was this, this just a fever dream? Yeah, the or, the origin is I, I genuinely was had gotten into birding, and it had become, like, my main hobby. I was definitely, like, after the 500 Days of Comics thing, I was looking for any kind of hobby that I couldn't maximize or monetize or overwork myself. Birding, if you maximize or monetize or overwork yourself birding, you're doing something wrong. It's, like, the chillest hobby of all time. So anyways, I was doing that, and I actually was just genuinely sitting around drawing birds. I was, like, quarantined uh, in between getting ready to go see my parents, like, in the, at a, in a cabin in the woods. And um, I was just like, oh, I'm going to draw something that's not for social media, it's just for me. And I started drawing birds that I'd seen that day. And, you know, I was kind of like, oh, that, that looks kind of nice, you know? And then I was like, how could I post this online? Like, people will think it's boring. And I was like, I know, I'll pretend that I'm an idiot. <laughs> and that I, so I posted them under the guise that I was just a person who was trying to draw the most realistic birds possible, um, but that they move really quickly and, you know, they're hard to get a long look at. So here's my best attempt what do you think do you have any constructive criticism and then i gave each of the birds butts and legs a toned a very muscular greek sculpture looking legs and butt yes yes these are these, these are very toned bird butts and i i'm actually honored to hear that it took off in birding circles that makes me very happy oh yeah because i'm not connected with the birding I'm, I'm i love birding but i'm not connected with the birding on, online world so the idea that uh, i could be passed around with a false knees comic let's say uh, is, <laughs> is an honor oh yeah i saw you know some audubon folks and uh ornithologists wow <laughs> sharing around like you said you have like a calendar of them too right like put them all together into like a collection i yeah i made a calendar last year um that i was shocked how many people wanted it um <laughs> which is great but yeah so did a, a lot of bird illustrations and hoping to do another one uh this year of some all new birds I've got my notifications turned on. I will be watching like a hawk for those bird drawings to drop. <laughs> well, and it's funny, too, because I, I feel like the people who got the calendar, something that surprised them was that because the online shtick was so ridiculous, I don't think they were expecting. I wrote blurbs under all the birds that are like very bird book like, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I really went into detail and also made them a little bit ridiculous. But um, so I think people were kind of surprised to be like, wait, I think this guy actually likes birds. That's that's weird. <laughs> you got to pull a bait and switch, <laughs> yeah. right? You got to lure people in with a little bit of, you know, Haha, it's a funny butt. And then boom, science communication. It sneaks in. It's like a Trojan horse. Yes. Use the butts to draw <laughs> people towards conservation. Exactly. That's a charismatic uh, species right there. That's a flagship butt is what that is. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that kind of like 
once you posted those and they, you know, went around and everything, I, of course, I knew you from Jukebox Ago, so I was already a huge fan. I was like, this guy likes birds. I'm going to keep that piece of information in my pocket for a while. Um, and then when your album just dropped, so, you know, you were talking about wanting to come on podcasts and stuff, and I was like, me, 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 come talk to me about birds. Oh, my God. I was so excited. I was so excited. You know, you mentioned that you really had, like, sincerely gotten into birding not as a bit. <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> yeah. there was a bit involved in the illustrations, but that the birding itself was not a bit. And I wanted to kind of ask you about like, what has the experience of birding like been like for you? Are you a long time birder? Is it just like a recent thing that you've picked up just like within the last couple of years? Like what has the birding journey been like? Yeah, it's really been the last, I mean, really seriously for the last eh, three years, or at least three years ago is when I got a pair of binoculars and actually started making it a regular part of my day. And in fact, I remember one of my one of my good friends is in, in conservation. It's also a, a nature guide and, um, you know, runs guiding expeditions in, Al in Alaska. Wow. And we used to work, I, I used to be a park ranger with him um, for the National Park Service. And stop, stop, stop. <laughs> you used to be a park ranger? I was a park ranger. Yeah. What? For, for only, for like, for three years, seasonal. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Well, so my, my buddy who I was a park ranger with, um, I remember I told him that I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm starting to like learn about what birds I'm seeing yeah. in in New York, you know, like in Central Park and in, you know, McCarran Park in Brooklyn. And he was like, do you have binoculars? And I was like, no, I'm just looking around. And he was like, at first I thought this was like a condescending thing to say. And now I completely agree with him. Uh, but he was like, bro, that's like skiing without skis. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, harsh. Hey. And then I got a pair of binoculars and I was like, it is like skiing without skis. You really can't <laughs> see those things without binoculars. So yeah, I got I got into birding and you know, it was in a time in my life, I think when I was like, I was definitely having some like mental health issues with anxiety and a lot of just like a lot of existential and career and life anxiety and some health issues. And so it became like this daily like home for me where like everything else around me felt like there was a lot of pressure around it and a lot of turmoil. But I always knew that I could find like a home in just having nothing to do but go to the park and see what kind of birds are out there and write them down. And it might sound stupid, but to me, it was like my anxious brain's gateway into mindfulness, like mm. a, a kind of really basic meditative state where you're you're just paying attention to your surroundings and you're not letting your thoughts rule the picture you're just kind of getting in touch with your your senses that's how i got into birding and it really became just like medicine for me so i i mean i do, i do it pretty much every day on tour i found that it's really fun because um you know i used to kind of have more of an agenda as an outdoors enthusiast where if we were in a certain city with a mountain i was like if I can get to this mountain before soundcheck and get this hike in, that'd be awesome. And then be so disappointed when there wasn't enough time. And what I found with birding is that it doesn't matter where I am. I can have a really nice walk and enjoy being wherever the heck I am. You know, so I, I think before I wouldn't have had a, a connection or a, a tether to the ability to appreciate just a simple walk in Indianapolis, you know? Yeah. And I actually genuinely enjoy being wherever I am. It's so grounding. It's so grounding. I think. 
it is just something that forces you, I suppose not really forces you because there's nothing forceful at all about birding, you know, like it's not the sort of thing that is like, there's no grind. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. Not, right? Although I've push yourself. I've met some people who seem to have that attitude and I was very confused by it, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, teach their own. It's just like, it's the sort of thing that just allows you to pace yourself, but also like the nature of it kind of requires you to be very in tune with your immediate physical surroundings. So like, I've heard this a lot from people, right, that are really into birding in particular, just requires you to use the extent of your eyes and your ears and be incredibly aware of what's going on around you. So if you tend to be the kind of person that just gets sucked into your head and you tend to spend a lot of time inside your brain, it like pulls you out because you have to. If you want to see where that bird went, you have to be listening really closely and you have to be looking around to see what the other birds are doing. Like Absolutely. It just draws you out and it just makes you be there present. So I, it's just, it's so good for working through any sort of like disconnect from reality or something so good for like being present yeah well and it pulls you into kind of like a a place that when you get there you're like this is actually this makes more sense to me it's not even like necessarily meditative by nature but it's like it feels like what our brains are meant for which is just looking for things moving and yeah patterns and observing your surroundings except you know in this case i don't eat the birds but you know just gather them in my mind It's like that primate sort of tendency to be always observing what the other animals around you are doing. So, you know, like, oh, all the birds flew away. Maybe there's a threat. Right. Or, oh, all the birds are nesting. Maybe there's like nests and food sources in that area. So, like, it does scratch that sort of itch, right? (laughs) Like that drive to observe. Yeah, I I should say that, like, I have very limited experience bird watching, which is probably surprising considering that I live in Florida, which is one of the most bird rich states (laughs) in the country. Some of the best. I know, they're incredible. I do go hiking quite a bit, but not for the purpose of bird watching. But we live up against a retention pond. And so we get to do an astonishing amount of birding in our backyard. And I think last year, I finally got my husband a pair of binoculars for Christmas, which was also for me for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, yep. That was kind of a for us gift. Um, but, you know, so we keep them right by the back door. So that every time there's a cool bird back there, boom binoculars right there ready to go ready to look out the window but i very much have the same experience you know of like sometimes when you just feel like you're like spending too much time in your own head or lost in your thoughts it's like a great way to be present in nature again which i'm sure is probably something that came in very handy spending so much time traveling and spending so much time you know going from city to city i can imagine that's probably a very you know disorienting process absolutely absolutely well it's kind of endlessly interesting too i mean and listen i love mammals but you're not going to see the same variety of of mammals if you if you go out for a walk i mean it's just incredible the amount of bird species you can see in an, I mean, especially during migration season in any normal place. And uh, in New York, too, you know, I mean, there's that whole Central Park effect where the birds all get funneled into the handful of parks because there's not a lot of green space. And so New York is not a city you would think of uh, as being a place for outdoor enthusiasts, but somehow it, it is one of the best birding places on the East Coast. Maybe because the birds are are suffering a little bit and crowded into these green spaces. But it is amazing. I mean, during migration season, I mean, I've logged like 60, 70 birds in a a season just just like going out every morning. Since we're talking about migration and the ability to see birds, you know, that are on their migratory path, birds that congregate in very specific places, 
Let's get into our animal for this week. Yes! This week, at your suggestion, I should say, we're talking about the Sandhill Crane, which I'm in Florida. This is an icon. We have a subspecies of Sandhill Crane here called uncreatively the Florida Sandhill Crane, but they are non-migratory, so they just chill here all year round. That's smart. Good for them. (laughs) Okay, so we have non-migratory Canada geese as well, and they are a menace. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Of course, you know, only to the human perspective. That's yes. completely, you know, anthropocentric, but... They've adapted well. They have. That's a them thing. I can't fault them for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I did want to ask before we get into the Sandhill Crane, like, what got your interest about the Sandhill Crane? What do you find cool about them? So I feel like my, my relationship with the Sandhill Crane is very personal. Oh, really? Um, which is during the pandemic... I was kind of floating around. I'd given up my apartment in New York. I'd been helping out with family for a while. And I ended up with some friends renting an Airbnb in Wikiwachi, Florida. (gasps) I know exactly where that is. I've been canoeing there. Oh, it's beautiful. Isn't it? I went canoeing there as a a little, little kid with my dad. And we canoed with manatees. And it was great. So fond memories of Wikiwachi. Oh, yeah. So for those who don't know, I mean, Wikiwachi is like, you know, probably about an hour, uh, over an hour north of Tampa. And the Wikiwachi River is there, and it's this gorgeous, crystal clear, shallow, semi-tidal river. And there are so many manatees there. And there's these really deep hot springs that are just like crystal clear. There's one called Hospital Hole that all these manatees travel to. It's just a really, it's a really beautiful place. So we were renting an Airbnb down there as just like a work from home location and kayaking every day and going to look at manatees, which you see every day if you go kayaking there. And there were sandhill cranes, a couple of sandhill, uh, you know, a pair of sandhill cranes that were hanging out in the yard every day, pretty much while we were there until the very end, which I believe makes them migratory because it seemed like they left. But the, uh, our, our neighbors who owned the Airbnb were, um, had named them Ricky and Lucy, oh, you know, from I Love Lucy. That's so sweet. <laughs> you would just hear that really distinct kind of wooden sounding a call that they have that's so strange. It's like rattly almost. Yes, yes. Like it sounds creaky. like rattling pieces of wood together or something. And... There were a few times where we caught them doing their dance for each other. And clearly, they're already coupled off. But they were in the yard. And, you know, they're famous for this. They kind of do like this acrobatic ballet for each other to like show off. And it's this gangly, beautiful, absolutely bizarre and and wonderful (laughs) dance. It's, It's amazing. But there was Spanish moss all over the area where we were staying. And a couple of times we watched them use the Spanish moss as like, almost like they were ribbon dancing. Are you kidding? They pick it up in their beaks and throw it around, do a little dance like as it was falling to the ground. The other one would pick it up and then they would toss it and do a little dance. It was... Oh, they've got props now? They've got props. <laughs> they are legends. So that's how I fell in love with them. And I'd seen them years prior in Alaska which before I cared about birding, uh, my friend who I was t- talking about had pointed them out when they were they were migrating over Juneau. 
Anyway, so I just, I, I love the Sandhill Crane. I also got to have a close encounter with them in Indiana on a cross-country road trip just like a month ago. Um, so it's it's been neat to see them in so many different places and, you know, probably the same, I mean, for all I know, it's the same Sandhill Crane, you know, in Florida, <laughs> Indiana, and Alaska. And they're so, they're just so big and strange. I don't know, there's something, <laughs> they're real goofy. They are. So, okay. So if you're not familiar with sandhill cranes and you have no idea what we're talking about, (laughs) sandhill cranes are massive wading birds. They are up to four and a half feet tall, which is 1.4 meters for our metric listeners. Their wingspan can be up to seven feet, which is over two meters. Enormous, enormous bird. And they are mostly gray, but their forehead has this just pop of bright red skin right on the front of it. And then their eyes are this piercing yellow. So it's a very striking uh, looking bird. And like you said, they're found all over North America, as well as even just barely into Siberia. Just a little bit. There's some in Siberia. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow, good for them. Right? Like, they're killing it, obviously. There are subspecies of them, but they're all, like, the same species. So certain, like, subspecies in different areas may be more or less well-situated than others. So we have the Florida Sandhill Crane that's doing quite well population-wise. But then, for example, the Mississippi Sandhill Crane is endangered. So, like, once you get granular into that sort of, like, the population level, you know, they can be a little bit different, but they're all part of the same sort of big, happy Sandhill Crane family. One thing that is super cool about cranes and this species in general is that they have by far the longest fossil record of any extant species of bird. There is a Sandhill Crane fossil that was found that was 2.5 million years old. No. It's a Sandhill Crane. Like the same one we still have here today, 2.5 million years old. You know, you don't mess with perfection. If it's not broke. (laughs) Keep it where it's in. Yeah. Don't fix it. Which, you know, I always like to mention when we talk about birds that birds are just dinosaurs. What is a bird if not a dinosaur persisting? So birds are just modern day dinosaurs. And so one thing that I did want to kind of like ask is that I'm thinking like I'm combining the love of like birds, which are so beautiful, but also with a sort of prehistoric look. And from your lyrical tendencies to have this interest with like apocalyptic sort of like cataclysmic events. Does any of that intersect in a love for dinosaurs? <laughs> you a dinosaur kid, basically. I, I liked dinosaurs. I wouldn't say I was a total dinosaur freak, but I, you know, I had the trading cards and I loved Jurassic Park. And oh yeah, I remember being more terrified than I've ever been in my life watching Jurassic Park Two: The Lost World and thinking I should take gymnastics to kick, you know, velociraptors <laughs> in the head like that girl. It could happen to us. I had to leave the theater because my dad took me to see Jurassic Park 3. Uh, when I was very little, I was not old enough to watch that movie, and I screamed until he took me out of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen Prehistoric Planet yet, by the way, it's on Apple TV. It's incredible. It's a BBC nature documentary about dinosaurs, but it's like animates dinosaurs and gives them extant bird behaviors. Oh, wow. It's gorgeous. So good. Watch Prehistoric Planet if you haven't already. I'm probably going to do that tonight. You could. It's only five episodes long, although each episode is really long. So like, it might take you a while. Little plug for Prehistoric Planet because I can't stop talking about it. Hey there, friends. We're going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we're going to rate the Sandhill Crane. So stick around. In the briefest time, I feel like we got to know each other. Bro, 
I appreciate you so much for that. Do you read minds or what? It's really a very sacred space you've created here. <laughs> bullseye! You've hit the bullseye, baby! Bullseye. Interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, did grad school ruin your reading habits? Oh my God, all those books you had to read for grad school. Did becoming a parent destroy your ability to focus on a book? Did the pandemic tank the number of novels you can get through in a year? Ugh, that happened to everyone, and we're Reading Glasses, and we're here to help. We'll get you out of a book slump, dismantle all that weird reader guilt. Which we know you have a lot of, but most importantly, we'll help you fall back in love with reading. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. So. If this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, our whole deal is that we review animals by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. So the first category is effectiveness, which are physical adaptations, things that are built into the animal's body that let it do a good job of the things it's trying to do. A lot of times we have our guests do the ratings for the animals, but this time I'm going to do the ratings and then Tommy is going to chime in. Maybe you'll agree. Maybe you'll disagree. Uh, we'll have a little bit of Sandhill Crane discourse. I want to be the pitchfork media of, <laughs> of the Sandhill Crane universe. You want to do some good cop, bad cop? I, well, I, I got I to I gotta give a, a spoiler. For me, this is a 10 out of 10 classic. I mean, 2.5 million years says they are quite well adapted. Absolutely. That they are extremely effective in what they need to do. Yeah, for sure. I will spoil it and say that I did give them a 9 out of 10 for an incredibly nitpicky reason (laughs) oh let's hear it i want to hear it this is for effectiveness yes just like physical adaptations how well they're physically adapted to doing their thing the only thing that i kind of gave them a deduction for and this is possibly my hailing from the wetlands of florida bias is that sandhill cranes are they're omnivores they eat mostly plant matter like seeds and vegetation but some like little critters here and there you know they'll eat like frogs and lizards and snakes and stuff like that they're not fish specialists like um herons are so we have herons where i live here you can't throw a stone in florida without hitting a heron these stupid things are everywhere and what herons have that's really interesting is this collapsible neck you've seen this sort of s-shaped uh neck that herons have that lets them sort of shrink their neck down and then when it's time to strike they can shoot it forward like a like an atlatl so since herons have this incredibly effective and powerful neck cranes don't they have it's long they have a long neck but it's just kind of a straight neck they hold it out when they're flying they don't have the sort of dexterity and speed that a heron has that i know they're not fish specialists so they don't necessarily need the speed and dexterity but it couldn't hurt to have it, right? <laughs> Maybe oh you're God. going after a, a quick snake or a frog or something like that, right? Like, I'm just saying there's room. I can't believe I, I'm, I, I so agree with you. <laughs> and I, I actually wanted to bring this up as a question because I was surprised doing a little deeper dive into the Sandhill Crane that I just assumed that they must eat fish based on the locations that I had seen them. Right. And I was... Very confused that they don't. So, right. like they're right there. Yeah, I would. Ha- I would have to agree with you. I mean, maybe I. I don't think I can. My heart can bear to take a full point, but I'll give it. Maybe I'll change my score to nine point five. Okay, I'm fascinated. <laughs> I. I want to know what was in your what was in your W column for the Sandhill Crane. What What are the pros? Well, I guess my thinking was I was thinking about it much more zoomed out, and I was going, 
you know, there's a lot of bird species that have suffered from human development. And, you know, I'm sure that they have in some capacities, but they have adapted really well. And, you know, so I was giving them a lot of points for being able to thrive uh, in spite of our presence. Yeah, there's something to be said for adaptability, you know, like they've been doing the same thing for so long, but also they're able to kind of like slot that in as needed, because as we know, down here in Florida, they are not afraid to just stroll right through neighborhoods. Actually, a flock was in our neighborhood, maybe like two years ago, and all my neighbors got pictures of it and I wasn't there. So... I'm still kind of upset about that, but <laughs> but that being said, you know, they will just stroll right through your neighborhood, right? They are unbothered. They do not care because they know. They're like, I'm huge. Nobody's going to try to fight me. I'm fine. Well, and like you were saying, I mean, they, they in particular are very dinosaur-like in their presence. I mean, they like, even to the point where I, I don't know why I, this triggers prehistoric animal for me, but their beaks the nostril holes on their on their beaks are so big that you can see through to the other side of the landscape, like when you're looking at them, which is oh, wow. very strange. You know, I'm not used to being yeah. able to see through an animal. No, I've never noticed that before. That is incredible. Yeah, really <laughs> weird. I wonder if like anyone's ever staged a photo where like they're taking a picture of something like through the crane's beak. That'd probably be incredibly difficult to pull off. The, but yes. I mean, I did, you know, I, I did give them a nine. That's a, an A score. And a lot of it is because of, you know, they have the dagger-like beak. They have these incredibly long legs that give them a very wide melee range. <laughs> so if something is trying to bother them or especially trying to bother their young they can defend themselves, they can defend their babies, they can kick, they can stab, and they can do all of it from an incredible distance because they are so tall and lanky that they can kick you in the teeth without you being able to do anything to them because they're so far away. So there has to be something to be said for like being able to just at a distance beat somebody up. Absolutely. Without having to put yourself like in harm's way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the other thing that I really gave them a lot of points for is their wings. So they have these just enormous broad wings. They're like, they'll eclipse the sun when they fly over you. Like these are huge birds. And since they're large and heavy, obviously taking off is going to be really energetically draining for anything that's trying to like generate lift for that much like heft of a bird. Obviously they're birds, so they're not like as heavy as you might think an animal of that size would be. But still, so they have these big broad wings. So what they do is they'll take off just that once and then they'll soar for hours. They don't have to flap they don't have to come down. I should put this in the ingenuity section, but I'm just going to say it here because we're talking about how they fly. They use thermals. So they use these updrafts of warm air that's like a gust of air that's going up from the ground and they'll fly over it and catch the air and it'll lift them higher up into the air. So they kind of like, like they're like using physics to be lazy, essentially. <laughs> like I'm going to use the actual like geography of the earth rather than flap my wings. <laughs> yeah, birds are so cool. This is something that like vultures and like large birds of prey and stuff do. But for a big hefty bird like that, you love a thermal. They do knock it out of the park. I mean, they're doing great. I would like to see a little bit of taking cues from the herons. Maybe that's a heron bias because I just really like herons. But I'm just saying they got some good ideas. I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. You've you've you have made a very excellent point about the proliferance of of herons. That's a good skill to have. They could they could learn that. 
I'm just saying, keep your options open. Yeah. The second category that we rate our animals on in this uh, podcast is ingenuity. And this is behavioral adaptation. So this is like things the animal is actually doing to like solve problems that it faces or compete with other animals around it. I give, I give the Sandhill Crane an eight out of 10. And that's mostly because of their really interesting social dynamics. They are like social, but also not super social birds. Like you mentioned, they like to hang out in pairs. So they have a mated pair. They're monogamous until one partner dies, which is like true like monogamy, like till death do us part. That's like pretty rare for animals. And they li- they live a long time too. It's a big commitment. Yeah, I, I I think I saw online like there was like one a sandhill crane that lived to like 37 years old or something. Yeah, I don't doubt it. You know, they have these like long generations and they also do co-parent really well. So like there'll be a mated pair and then their young will like travel with them. and They'll take care of their young, which I think is always a plus. Uh, if you have the energy to spare, why not, you know, invest in your future. <laughs> but before they get the young, of course, they do what they're probably most well known for, which is their mating dance which you have recounted in stunning detail. And I highly recommend anybody to Google a video of it real quick because... Breathtaking. And the funniest thing about it is that sometimes they'll set each other off. <laughs> like One of them will start dancing like at a, you know, a boo, someone they got their eye on or something. And then another one nearby will be like, well, if you're dancing, I'm going to start dancing. So then they start busting a move. And then like it just kind of domino effects. And then all of them will start dancing, which is like just mayhem. It is complete chaos. <laughs> well, what I'd be curious to find out too, and obviously I, I didn't observe enough to know this, but, you know, it certainly seemed like, according to the neighbors, the pair that Ricky and Lucy that we were looking at had been coming back year after year. And so I found it very sweet that they were still kind of, if we're talking about the the mating dance they do as being like the bird equivalent of like going on a, a hot date. Yeah. You know, like I, I thought it was very cool that they're like, they're keeping their relationship fresh and exciting. They they're are. dancing for each other, even after they know they're mated for life. Like teenagers. That's like beautiful social dynamic stuff. That's great. I know. And just like staying passionate about each other. And like, I know it's like projecting human emotions on one animal to say that they're in love. But they're like, definitely in love, right? Like, definitely. definitely. You kidding absolutely me? Absolutely, for sure. Dancing is not a practical, like, you know, it's, it's, it's there's a, an extra factor for animal dancing. And it's like, you're already mated. Yes. So like, why are you trying to impress each other? Obviously, because you're deeply in love. And Life is a rom-com. <laughs> Dancing in the rain. It's all part of a big, beautiful musical movie about cranes. <laughs> so while they're dancing, they're also doing this just like incredible creaking, rattly sort of sound that you can hear just incredibly far away. If you look up a video of like a flock of sandhill cranes, I do not envy people who live where cranes migrate because... <laughs> I would be shocked if you could get anything done with these things screaming in your ear all day. Isn't there there's some spot in like Nebraska or something that's like tens of thousands of these things come every year. I'm glad you brought that up. So that is Platte River 
in Nebraska. Like we mentioned, these are migratory birds. Most of them are migratory. And most of them spend their summers up in the northern parts of their range. So in like the northern U.S. and Canada. And then they fly south for the winter. <laughs> so when they are on these migration paths, they will flock up. You know, like normally they spend their time in duos, but they'll come together into these like survival groups where they will just, I mean, it's spring break in Miami for these sandhill cranes. <laughs> like this site that you mentioned, Platte River in Nebraska, up to 80% of the entire population of all sandhill cranes flock to this one river in Nebraska. It's apparently a stopover on one of those big fly like flyways that goes up and down down the country and this is like a major stop point. It's kind of like their like refill station to get to the end of their migration route. And so they all stop here so we're talking like 500,000 birds in this like 75 mile long river. It's that many up to 500,000. I saw that they said that in 2020, I think it was, they had over that, they had like 600 something thousand. But yeah, every spring, all absolute hell breaks loose. <laughs> wow. Now, so based on the criteria of rating, you know, I said I was going to be 10 out of 10 in every category, but I, I, I'm almost tempted to deduct a point from ingenuity because that sounds to me, you know, we're talking about them being well adapted to human, relatively well adapted to human development. Um, that seems like a weak, a weak spot. If they have this one spot where all of them go, mm. I'm concerned for them. They, I hope they would lo- be able to diversify their stopover right. point if if they needed Don't to. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. In one in one Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You're upstaging me. <laughs> You've stolen my thunder. You come into my house and you make my buns. <laughs> Uh, well, so, okay, yes. I think that in this area, in this Platte River, the Sandhill Cranes migrating there is a big draw. Mm. I think that they find that incredibly valuable for their tourism because it is an enormous event. It's like highly marketed. They're incredibly proud of their, you know, cranes that migrate there every year. So I would hope that that would translate to a fair amount of protection for that area. Okay, and jo- and listen, you said it here, Sandhill Cranes are job creators. They are. They are the driving force of this economy. They are the backbone of the nation. Yes, and of Nebraska tourism. So I would hope that, like, since it's such a point of pride for that area, that it would translate to that area being fairly well protected. But I did, along the same lines of what you're saying, I did deduct some points for a specific reason that is a big thing in Florida and in other parts of the country, I'm sure, but I'm familiar with this one. So like I said, Sandhill Cranes are totally fine with chilling in like residential suburban areas, mostly because they really enjoy first retention ponds are awesome for Sandhill Cranes and also freshly mowed grass. Um, Apparently like Hmm. that disturbs enough seeds or vegetation in the area, like freshly mowed grass is really good for them. So they love to come into like a lawn that's just been mowed. So this becomes a big problem specifically when a sandhill crane walks near cars, mm. windows, any shiny surface. So what happens is the sandhill crane sees a challenger approaching in its reflection. 
So they see their reflection in a car. They perceive their reflection as a threatening rival, become incredibly aggressive, and attack the car. Whether or not the car has a human inside, there are multiple cases of people in Florida, I know of, there's probably cases elsewhere also, of people in their cars being attacked by cranes because the crane <laughs> sees their reflection. And I mean, it's a whole deal. So like the crane, of course, the people in the car don't know it's attacking its reflection. They think the crane is attacking them as a person. So the crane comes up, it's got its wings spread and its feet kicking and it's making that growly sound and everything. They're like, I'm being straight up attacked by a velociraptor right now. Like, it, this is a <laughs> Jurassic Park scenario. And so this has been such a problem that the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission has issued guidance on their website. It's on their website. If you look on their Sandhill Crane page, they literally have like a warning on there where they say that if you do happen to live in a habitat where Sandhill Cranes like to live, they say, this is a quote I pulled off their website. They say, cover or move automobiles so that cranes cannot see their reflections in the shiny surfaces. Windows or glass doors that the cranes attack can be temporarily covered with material so that the birds don't see their reflections. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's that's amazing. You've heard of Florida Man? This is Florida Crane. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah, have the yeah. exact same energy. <laughs> I mean, to their credit, dogs do this too, sort of, you know, when they see their own reflection. But yeah, 2.5 million years ago, there weren't a lot of mirrors to deal with. So they are dealing with a new challenge. Yes, this is a novel environment. And also dogs don't have a knife strapped to their face. So like... <laughs> <laughs> well, most most dogs. They have a bunch of tiny knives. <laughs> so the crane has the potential to do like a lot of damage because like I said, they're huge. They're they're strapped, right? These things are completely buffed. They've got pointy stuff on each end. I guess that also implies that since they are perceiving their reflection as a threat, that is them failing the self-recognition test right then and there. Mm. Like they're showing their hand <laughs> intelligence wise. Yeah. Like, don't like that guy. <laughs> The last category that we rate animals on is aesthetics, which is incredibly self-explanatory. It's just how nice this animal is to look at. This is the 10 out of 10 for me. Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to give this <laughs> any trouble in aesthetics. They're streamlined. They have this like really slender body that gives a very like uninterrupted silhouette. It's really gorgeous. They have these like ghostly gray feathers and then that pop of bright red. So like they're getting the contrast right. They're getting the composition right. Like everything is perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, they're unbeatable. It's a Gucci bird. Yes. Sometimes their feathers can look kind of brown, but that's because they're preening with mud on their beaks. Huh. So they're spreading mud on their feathers. I couldn't really find anything on whether that was like a beneficial thing. Like I know some animals will kind of self-anoint where they'll like rub something on their on their hair or feathers intentionally for some sort of benefit. Like bearded vultures. If you've ever seen a bearded vulture that has these bright red feathers, that's because they like preen clay into their feathers. So if you see one and it looks kind of brown, that's because they're muddy. <laughs> And I did also give them aesthetic points for singing a gorgeous song. Like, that's maybe like a, a sound-based aesthetic thing, but it's got to count for something, right? Absolutely. I like sound. I was actually going to ask you for, like, your take on, like, the Sandhill Crane sound, like, musically. If you were going to, like, incorporate the sound of a Sandhill Crane or, like, do, like, a Sandhill Crane-inspired piece of music, what do you think that would sound like? Mm, I feel like it would be, like, a really f fast rim click yeah like a, on a snare like the rim of the snare where it clacks mm. kind of yeah or or maybe like rattling a drumstick inside of a cowbell or a wood block oh yeah like it's got that sort of like 
breathy woodiness to it. Almost hollow sounding. Yeah. So, yeah, I would think of something, um, some fast polyrhythm. The, you know, I'm sure you could yeah. slightly slow down the call of the Santel Crane and use that as an interesting rhythmic element. It makes me think of like if you take the, your your guitar pick and like scrape it along the string instead of like strumming, you just like scrape it. Totally. And also as, you know, somebody who has drawn Sandhill Cranes, you know, you would have a better appreciation than me for how incredibly beautiful they are. Were they challenging to draw at all? Uh, I would I would say they were less challenging to draw, actually, because they're so distinct. Mm. You know, I like something like a warbler, I find difficult to convey because they can look so different. So to convey like a particular warbler, like you have to be pretty good. I feel like I'm not there yet. But a Sandhill Crane, you know, when you see it. If it's vaguely correct. But yeah, I really enjoyed drawing that one. And actually, I feel like I, because of my personal relationship with the Sandhill Crane, I really forced it into the calendar because otherwise the calendar is 100% pretty common North American East Coast yard birds. And uh, the Sandhill Crane, I would not call a common yard bird. So, but I was just like, you know what? Screw it. You guys are getting a Sandhill Crane in this calendar. I'm so glad that you are out there advocating for our massive dinosaur beasts Ugh. because they need they need the PR boost. Yeah, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but when I saw them most recently, it was in um, Indiana Dunes National Park, which is a very funny national park. I'd love to know the history of it, but it's there's Indiana Dunes State Park, and then Indiana Dunes National Park is just the acres around it. They do have a national park like visitor center, but it's very much just like a park of scattered acres between neighborhoods on the Great Lake. Okay. Yeah, it's just a, it's a very funny, strange national park. I just come with my girlfriend through a lot of like Western national parks on the way. And so there's something very funny and charming to us about stopping through Indiana Dunes National Park, which is, <laughs> you know, a, really a, about... You know, it's I, I, Central Park, I would imagine, is a lot bigger. So when you saw the cranes there, was it like a pair of them? Were they like... Just saw one, actually. Oh, that's sad. But it was a really, you know, there, another one might have been nearby. It was a very foggy, misty sort of day. So the visibility was low. We actually were very, we were very excited that we saw one at all because it was so foggy and eerie. How picturesque, though. I know. That's the time when I feel like they look the coolest, right? Because they're so tall and like they have that sort of gray, like ghosty sort of look. So I feel like that's the time when they look the best. Yes. And they, they look like they're they're in a Dr. Seuss book. I'd have to go look and see <laughs> which one, but they're in, they're in it. I will say, I did give them a 10 for aesthetics, but if you catch any crane or any pointy looking bird from head on... That's not a good look. Have you ever seen like a one of the pointy birds just from straight, like they're looking right at you? Yeah, they it's look not really a... silly. They look like a stick, a stick with eyeballs. Yeah, <laughs> like right on the side. So maybe from that angle, maybe not a ten out of ten. Um, but you know, you catch them from the right angle. And... We've all we've all got a good side and a good angle. You know. I was going to say, I was like, maybe like I too, you know, carefully curate what photos I'm tagged in on Facebook. So like, I can't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mentioned earlier that they're found all over the country, but some of them are doing a little better than others. So the Mississippi and the Cuban sandhill cranes are federally endangered species. The IUCN Red List, which like evaluates endangered species, 
they don't get down to the subspecies level typically, so they don't have an IUCN red list rating, but the U.S. Wildlife Department does consider the Mississippi and Cuban sandhill cranes to be federally endangered. Um, so the reason for that is that unregulated hunting and habitat loss just led to this massive decline in the species in the 20th century. Like they were down to like less than 100 breeding pairs. Things were going very bad for sandhill cranes in like the like 1930s to the 60s. There were hardly any left. But conservation efforts helped. They, you know, were put on the endangered species list. Their habitats that they live were protected, you know, like the sites that they migrate to were identified. The Migratory Bird Act was a huge win for them, right? That like made it illegal to mess with any migratory bird in the United States. So, you know, conservation helped and helped them rebound. And now a lot of them are doing great. They kind of recovered from like the brink of extinction. Florida sandhill cranes are really thriving. There's a couple of problem spots that still need some help. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a conservation success story. Oh, love that. So there's a little bit of inspiration to be drawn from the sandhill crane and we're, we're lucky to still have them that's awesome and that wraps things up for the sandhill crane today so i would love if you could let our friends listening know like where can they keep up with your work where can they find your music where can they find your art where can people keep up with you yeah so um jukebox the ghost my band um if you want to check that out we're on any the streaming platform of your choice whatever the, whatever that may be yeah, just search us on there. We just came out with a new record. It's called Cheers. We're real proud of it, and uh, we'd be honored to have your ears. And for my cartooning, uh, that's all under my name, which is Tommy Siegel. And you can see my work on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or on my website, which is uh, TommySiegel.net. Perfect. And well, Tommy, it has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your stories about birding and cranes. I highly recommend that everybody listening go and check out your music, follow along with your work, go see a jukebox, a ghost show next time they're in your town, because I promise it's an incredible time. I've been to so many of them over the years. They're always super fun. Just thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. I could talk about birds all day. So th thank you so much for having me on, Ellen. This is a blast. Thank you for geeking out with me. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, friends. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It meant so much to me to get to talk to Tommy and geek out about cranes with a personal hero of mine. So uh, thank you for indulging me in this conversation. If you liked what you heard today, it would mean a lot to us if you left us a five-star review on your podcatcher like Razdaz123, who left us five stars on Apple Podcasts and said, quote, I love learning about all kinds of animals from them. I also enjoy learning about the hosts of the show the longer I listen. Wonderful people, wonderful podcast. Thank you. That really did make my day in a big way. And thank you to everyone else who has left kind words for the podcast, whether it's on your podcatcher or on social media or just spread the word, recommended us to friends. It means the world to us. We really appreciate it. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We even have a Discord server. That's a ton of fun. I stream video games on Twitch on Thursday and Sunday nights. This week on Thursday night, I'm playing Stray. And on Sunday night, I'm going to be playing a new game called Endling. Extinction is forever. Really excited for both of those games. I'm also going to be on a Dungeons and Dragons live stream called Science and Sorcery with a bunch of amazing animal scientists, including past guests Dachmar Darvedevin from our Archer 
Fish episode and Sebastian Echeverry from our Jumping Spider episode. I am going to be playing a cuttlefish-themed rogue named Sepia Cuttlethroat. That is going to be on Friday, July 22nd at 2 p.m. Eastern. A link to the Twitch channel where you can find that stream as well as our socials will be in the episode description below. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal that you would like to hear about on the show. Thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on your network alongside the lineup of other wonderful shows on the network, like the ones that you heard promos for earlier today. You can check them out and learn more about the network at MaximumFun.org. While you're there, consider signing up for a membership to keep us going along with the rest of the shows on our network. Finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our incredible bop summer jam of theme music. That is all for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.